available in more homes than the Pac-12 Network. We are the Podcast of Champions. I'm David Woods from Bruin Report Online. And here he goes, Miles Jack! And I'm Ryan Abraham from uscfootball.com. Liner, gonna try to sneak it ahead. Touchdown, SC! We are the Podcast of Champions. Welcome, everyone, back to the Podcast of Champions. I'm David Woods from Bruin Report Online, the UCLA site on the 24-7 Sports Network. And I'm Ryan Abraham from uscfootball.com, the USC site on the 24-7 Sports Network. And together, we are the Podcast of Champions, talking all things Pac-12 football. We're rolling into spring football. Uh, We're going to call it that for right now, but it is mid-February, so we're the day before Valentine's Day. Happy Valentine's Day, everybody. Um, If you have any questions or comments for us, I know we just did a show on Saturday, so we don't have as many questions this week, but we'll try to get into a regular routine on Mondays. Our email address is pac12podcast at gmail.com. If you'd like to call or text, you can leave a voicemail or send us a text. 424-532-0678 is the number. You can also tweet us at Pac-12 Podcast, of course, our website is Pac-12Podcast.com with all our old episodes. And if you go to iTunes and subscribe and rate us, we'd really appreciate that. Leave us a five-star rating, some nice review, maybe something funny. Take a shot at me, take a shot at Dave, take a shot at both of us. We do love that. And uh, we love that you guys love the show. So we're excited. Uh, One of our favorite guests, especially someone that was helping me a lot with my picks last year after my uh, being picking Arizona State to be last in the conference, uh, Chris Cartman. Uh, publisher of Some Devil's Source, changed my mind. And so I changed my picks throughout the year. Chris, welcome back to the show. Thanks for coming on. Hey, man, Ryan, that worked out pretty well for you, didn't it? <laughs> it was got to beat David for the third year in a row. David uh, didn't listen as well. But I was an initial respecter of Arizona <laughs> State. Don't I, I should get more credit for this. Okay, well, that, uh, that's fine. Let's see how you guys do this year. Yeah, not, well, not we'll, we'll see. Dave I, was I, down I can on tell Utah. you how I'll do. Not well. Dave was down on Utah, and I picked him to win. Um, so it'll be curious to see what happens, uh, this year. Yeah. You got to get Utah Twitter on people cause they'll stick, they'll, they'll get on you. They stick to you, you know, uh, oh, yeah. I'm familiar with that. <laughs> yeah. If there, you was, <laughs> there was some recruiting battles. Uh, you guys will remember like Jaden Daniels and what happened with that. So yeah, you, Utah fans were, were, were very, uh, prominent on my Twitter. Yeah. Follow Chris on Twitter at Chris Cartman, K-A-R-P. Uh, M-A-N, or you can follow Sun Devil Source too. Uh, but Chris does a just a really good job. I mean, it's it's he's so good at what he does. Check out their spring football coverage now. Yes, it's spring football coverage. We'll we'll get into Chris all is that. about to he's about to jump through the microphone and strangle you for <laughs> continuously calling it spring ball. We're not there yet. We're not. <laughs> yeah, everybody um, everybody's a conformist. Like why? Like it's it's springing quotes at the best. You know. Yeah, well, maybe yeah. we should start with that. Like, there's a lot of, of topics we want to uh, kind of get to, but the so February 6th, I believe, Arizona State started there. You get 15 practices before the summer, whatever you want to call it. Uh, it's going to be a condensed all in February spring football or pre, whatever you want to call it. Uh, Chris, I mean, I don't know if you want to give some explanation of what's going on here and what you like to call it, because it's certainly not spring, even in Arizona. Well, it's we're on a gradual move toward calling it winter ball. You have to you have to temper that. Um, I, I just think ASU decided that with the accelerated uh, recruiting calendar 
and the ability to try to get recruits on their campus uh, before other schools are having spring ball and before there's a lot going on with a lot of the, the camp uh, season and seven-on-seven seven tournaments and all that stuff, they decided that they wanted to have Friday night and Saturday night practices in February when there's less competition. So uh, they actually have had a bunch of recruits that were in this past weekend, their first weekend of practices, and they will again this weekend. And and then um, in, in March and April, um, you know, when everybody's normally practicing, they'll be doing a lot of the prep work on where they want to go for the, the spring evaluation period uh, starting in mid-April. And then, it, of course, everybody knows you have the the official visits that now take place in April, May, and, and early June. And I think that they, they'll be more ready for that as well. So the, the the early signing period, of course, now becoming like the normal signing period for a lot of these schools like ASU and, um, and the early official visits, it, it's really just moved up everything. And I think ASU is just trying to um, trying to get ahead of the curve or maybe stay ahead of its peers. And this is one way that I thought that it, it was able to do that. There's some trade-offs to it. Like some guys that got hurt during the season are probably not going to be ready for practice when you start in the first week of February. And then uh, some of the self-scouting that these teams do every year after their season is hard in January when you're also out recruiting. So uh, some of ASU's coaches were doing that in the back of cars as they're being driven around uh, uh, from school to school, especially the coordinators. Um, you know, but then there's also some positive trade-offs. Like if somebody gets hurt in February, you have more time to, to heal up. And then the coaches also like that they're going to have more uh, un unobstructed time in the spring to be in the weight room and have that be the singular focus of maximizing that their, their hours that they have. So uh, I think, I personally think this is going to end up kind of becoming more of a trend. It already has, I guess, at some schools, not, not to the degree of ASU, but I, I look for teams to, to start earlier, uh, more frequently, um, in, in coming years. With um, with ASU, uh, just something occurred to me. Uh, player run practices are a big deal to kind of bridge the gap at a lot of schools between spring ball and then fall camp, um, or in this case, winter ball and summer camp. Um, <laughs> if if uh, are they gonna? Uh, do you know if there's a plan for? I mean, obviously these are quote unquote player run practices everywhere. Um, but does was this going to allow them to do more of that or do you think it truly will be more of just a focus in the weight room come you know march and april no i think that's still going to be a, a, the, the same uh significance that it always has been and it is definitely important at asu um they really take a few weeks off maybe two weeks off in may because uh they're on the semesters and so they come back around uh the end of may early june and then i would say june and then most of July is when is when at ASU that's like peak time for that kind of stuff. Um, a, a lot of the a lot of the high school kids arrive uh, early, except for from California high schools, kind of to end a little bit later. So some of those guys can't come in for the first summer session. They have they have two summer sessions at ASU, um, but I, I think that's a that's a big deal. And and actually, these coaches have talked a lot about the, the value of it, especially. Uh, getting everybody in sync uh, offensively and, and knowing the scheme and, and the roles that they have within it. And, and I think you, you also start to really get a sense of who your leaders are 
uh, in summer practices because of the ability to just manage uh, all the other players on the roster and get everybody uh, bought into what you're trying to do. I apologize. Uh, we just kind of, because we started talking spring, we didn't do our drop. We got to do our drop. Arizona State Sun Devils. <laughs> I could have. Especially because it's the best one. Yeah, it is the best one. I could have edited it in, but that would have taken effort, and uh, that's probably not going to happen. So <laughs> I'm like not going to. You, you were building up to the drop. Yeah. You know? <laughs> When is this drop going to happen? People are at home. <laughs> I've been, I'm an ASU fan. I haven't heard the drop for a while. What is going on here? You've already talked to Chris. We're talking about winter ball and summer camp and all this stuff. Um, well, so we're going to get back to spring a little bit because there's, you know, about a third of the way through uh, for the Sun Devils. But I had some topics I think we were going to try to hit through, you know, every publisher that we talk to going through all the spring f- football stuff. Um Starting with recruiting, uh, Chris, uh, nationally, the Sun Devils, according to the 24-7 Sports Composite, finished 31st, 5th in the Pac-12, brought in uh, three quarterbacks, uh, nine players from California, five from Arizona. Um, Any kind of thoughts on how ASU uh, recruited the second year under Herm Edwards? Uh, Well, certainly they did a lot better, I would say, than just that transitional class. Uh, Of course... The quarterback situation, uh, they hit a home run on. That was one of the best quarterback classes in the country by by every sort of analysis that you would look at. Jaden Daniels is the highest-rated quarterback ASU's ever signed. So interesting the way that that recruitment played out because uh, Daniels didn't even list ASU in his, in his top eight or final eight, whatever it was, like last spring. I think it was in June. And then ASU really, really aggressively stepped up late in the process. Uh, Antonio Pierce, who's looking like one of the best recruiters in the Pac-12 now, had a, a connection to Daniels and his mom and, and some mutual friends. And and they were able to go in and, and steal him away from UCLA and Utah, uh, despite the fact that AC already had two other quarterbacks, including Joey Yellen. And, and Joey Yellen wasn't really the easiest of pulls because – he visited Georgia twice, including um, well after he committed late in the cycle, but then ultimately decided to stick with um, stick with ASU. And and these guys have looked pretty good uh, for being freshmen and just coming in and getting their feet wet and, and trying to learn the offense and everything. I, I would say especially Daniels, he hasn't thrown any interceptions in seven on seven and eleven on eleven through the first six practices. That's that's a really good sign for a quarterback because it means that he's just he's seeing the field pretty well and not not really making bad reads or and he's not been hesitant out there uh, i would say he's probably still behind dylan sterling cole the returner uh who, who was a backup to manny wilkins and, and that's to be expected obviously because uh he knows the offense down cold right now uh but the the gap isn't maybe as much as I would have expected for the first two weeks, especially between those two. Uh, and and now it's going to be about determining how that rate of development happens with the quarterbacks. And then elsewhere in the recruiting class, uh, they did a good job uh, back at Long Beach Poly, where, of course, Pierce used to be the head coach. They got uh, Keon and, and, and Kiwan Markham, uh, four-star athletes who will both be in the secondary and they did better in California just in general. Um, this staff has a very keen awareness of the need to recruit California successfully. 
and and that dropped off a lot in the 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 last couple years of Todd Graham to where they actually didn't sign any high school kids in one class, which is like that's malpractice, really. Uh, but I think these guys, in the first two years, they've signed about fifteen of the top. 100 kids from California over those two classes. And they're really uh, making a, a strong push of outreach, putting up posters in a lot of these schools and, and uh, you know, just doing the political type stuff, the, the slapping guys on the back and shaking hands and making their presence known. And that probably will, will have a chance to pay out the biggest dividends here in 2020 and 2021. Cause obviously, as you guys know, recruiting now is is a multi-year thing on the top prospects they're getting they've been targeted and they're being heavily pursued when they're like sophomores or if not earlier and this is probably the first class where ASU's not really at a disadvantage by being behind the curve from a timing standpoint so if they're able to take another step forward this year maybe do a little bit better in Arizona and a little bit better in California they can maybe push into a top 25 or maybe even a borderline top 20 type class in 2020. They already have two four-star highly regarded commitments. Uh, uh, Chad Johnson Jr., uh, you know, Ocho Cinco's son out of California, who's a receiver and a pretty good one. And then they got a kid uh, who's a defensive back from Georgia named T. Lee, who uh, after he committed to ASU, Georgia and Alabama offered. So it's going to be hard keeping him from Georgia, but that just shows that they're actually – on a pretty good overall trajectory in recruiting as they, they start to get settled in. Absolutely. <clears throat> um, you, you touched on uh, the, the beginnings of the quarterback competition. Um, I know, I, I think Manny Wilkins had a, a statistically a great senior season. Um, and, but I know uh, reading the ASU boards at times, there was obviously some frustration with him at different points in terms of just maybe not stepping up in certain games and, and just, um, you know, maybe, I, I don't know, maybe lacking a little bit of that kind of senior, just, you know, knowing what to do at the right times and just kind of playing within himself. Um, what do you, what's your sense of any one of these guys on the roster being able to step up and provide at least what Wilkins did last year? So I think that's a great question, David, and, and that's going to really be determinative in, in, in how ASU season actually unfolds. Um to your point, I think I think yes, Manny Wilkins, that Stanford game, he he mismanaged the clock at the end, and that was really glaring. And ASU was one win away, really, from uh, winning the South. So so people will look at that and a couple other situations. He also um, missed a lot of deep throws this past season, where which really should have been touchdowns. I would say probably six to eight of them, and th- and that. That's a major difference um, in the success of an offense, and most of them were overthrows. Now, on the flip side, extremely uh, good at ball security and not throwing jeopardy balls and not having interceptions. Set a school record for the most number of throws without an interception. That's that's so huge. You look at like Utah, for example, and uh, when Utah has not turned the ball over with its quarterbacks. That's when it's been excellent and because their defense and their run game are so solid and they stop the run. Uh, and then when they've had problems with turning the ball over with their quarterback, that's when they haven't been as good. And I think um, I think that's sort of what enabled ASU to, to be uh, pretty good offensively last year, despite maybe missing s- some things uh, in the, in the, in the, the, the vertical game. And then some of the, some of the, um, late game situations that maybe were mismanaged or just 
not fully realized. Um, so I think I think what has to happen this year is you you have to have uh, not too much drop off in terms of uh, being able to have drive sustainment and not giving short fields to opponents. Uh, and and you of course have an Eno Benjamin who's coming off a great season, a record-breaking rushing record at ASU, and, and then ASU will probably start five senior offensive linemen, most of whom have uh, extensive starting experience. So that is, you know, that really is like something that you, as a quarterback, really need to be able to to play off of as an advantage. But at the same time, if you're ASU, you know what opponents are going to do to you, right? The opponents are going to tr- are going to load the box up, they're going to try to take away Eno Benjamin or limit him as much as possible. They're going to give you man coverage, and then they're going to say, okay, let's see if your quarterback can beat us in man coverage. And especially the way the Pac-12 has evolved, it's a lot of man coverage and a lot of press man on the perimeter, and that means that you have to be able to beat teams vertically. And that's where ASU wasn't really able to totally do last year with Wilkins. And so if you can get a quarterback who doesn't throw interceptions and also can be accurate on the deep ball, to some of these uh, big play targets that ASU has, like a Frank Darby or Brandon Ayuk or John Humphrey coming off of an Achilles, um, that that can give you an ASU offense that won't take a step backwards and may even be able to take a little bit of a step forward despite losing a quarterback who was pretty good last year. You mentioned, uh, I mean, uh, Manny Wilkins a lot. Of course, uh, Nikhil Harry no longer there. Who would you say are the, maybe just a couple names, like the biggest uh, losses for ASU on both sides of the ball that they'll have to replace this year? Uh, undoubtedly, those are the biggest two, right? Manny Wilkins and Nikhil Harry. Nikhil Harry was, you know, star, one of the best receivers in the in the Pac-12. Um, and then and then really, other than that, they lose uh, one of the better and probably more underrated offensive linemen in, in, uh, in the Pac-12, Quinn Bailey, who played right tackle. He didn't give up a sack until, like, uh, Oregon and, like, the in like the second to the last game of the season and was very, very good as a tackle in the run game. So I, I would say those those three players are, are their, probably their biggest losses on offense. And then on defense, their biggest loss was Rennell Wren as a nose tackle, who was one of the best overall athletes and physical specimens uh, in, in the conference. And I don't know that they're going to have – uh, someone who can replace him from a purely physical standpoint, even though DJ Davidson is is a good young player who, who carries 320 pounds or so pretty well. So maybe he has a chance. Uh, and then they lost one of their starting members of their secondary, Demonte King, who is a very consistent player, but not one of their more dynamic athletes. Uh, their defense overall really should be actually improved next year after being maybe the youngest uh, defense among just the, the number of starts of freshmen that ASU had uh, of any team in Division One in the country. Uh, Eno Benjamin, I mean, we were, I mean, I, I think we all noticed him and you obviously touted him up uh, before the year last year as well. He might have been the best running back on a team that included Kalen Balazs and, and Demario Richard. And then he obviously proved that last year. Um, how's he looked so far this spring? Does he look I mean, because I mean, he's still on the growth curve of his career. I mean, yeah, <laughs> second second year player, and now he's heading into his third year. Um, how's he looking? Does has he you know filled out even more? What what, what does he look like um, after six practices in spring? Yeah, actually, he posted uh, to Twitter a, a photo that showed his weight is now up to like 
207 or 208 pounds. So he's probably gained 10 pounds. Um, really looks good physically. And uh, already he was excellent at breaking tackles and, and having great balance as a runner. He actually, according to Pro Football Focus, had over 1,000 yards after contact. Right. <laughs> that's, that's crazy. crazy. Like that, like that's crazy. Right. Um, and, and, and also his endurance was great. He's, he broke not only the rushing record, but also the most carries in a season. Uh, and he seemed to be able to handle getting 20 carries a game in, even into November without really missing a beat. And now he's probably 10 pounds stronger. I think what they're really working on with him is, is having him be more precise route runner so that he can get the ball in more creative ways that teams are going to have a harder time to account for uh, in their game prep on a week-to-week basis. Because, you know, all these guys can kind of catch that little, you know, screen underneath. But are you able to really run uh, a great route into the flat or, or run something that's like a wheel route that stresses teams uh, into the boundary uh, matchup against a linebacker or something vertical on the seam, I think they would love to see him be able to start to to uh, do some of those things, which would really even increase uh, how dynamic he is and make it tougher for teams to prepare. Um, one of the other topics, Chris, that uh, you're watching some of your videos and stuff, you guys do the, the two-minute drill after practices where you guys chat about what's been going on. But uh, one of the more recent topics was the uh, the next phase of the uh, Danny Gonzalez defense. So he's the defensive coordinator that came over from San Diego state. It looked, seemed like it looked a lot like, you know, last year, what San Diego state was running. Is it evolving or what, what's kind of changing about that? What's, what's the next phase? So just because they were so reliant on freshmen last year, like at times they started five freshmen, four of whom were true freshmen. And those guys weren't around in the spring last year or in the winter, as I like to say. Right. So, um, what we're seeing really is a lot of teams that that flip the field, you know, field and boundary side, and those things have different kind of responsibilities, and they see different types of route structures. Um, what teams will do is in, in the spring ball, they'll actually dual train, so they so they'll play left and right as opposed to field and boundary with their corners and their safeties, and that allows them to broaden out their skill set and understand what's happening at the positions around them, particularly in the secondary. And so I, I, I really think last year it was, it was just about learning their, their individual roles, like Ashari Crosswell as a Ranger safety playing as a true freshman. And then uh, Merlin Robertson played on, as an outside linebacker. And now he's practicing the middle linebacker position. And Darian Butler played as a, as a middle linebacker. And now he's practicing an outside linebacker. It's, it's so those guys understand, okay, this is what these other guys' jobs are on these particular plays. And then having that in, in your brain, uh, it gives you that, that, that next sort of uh, a stage of comprehension of what everybody's roles are and how my 111th sort of fits into that. So then you know like where you can maybe gamble a little bit or where you can't make a mistake on. Uh, and just that extra sort of knowledge base, I think is probably going to help them a lot uh, uh, this season. And and, um, and they're still so so young, really, overall. They're going to start a lot of guys who are sophomores and juniors. Oh, uh, and th- that's a great lead-in for the next piece, which is um, just kind of who's – who among guys that we maybe haven't heard a lot about have stood out so far in spring through six practices? Um, obviously, you mentioned you know guys we know like Eno Benjamin, but 
who else like if you've got like a handful of guys that you you'd want to shout out as guys who maybe opened your eyes a little bit well i just think that brandon iu he really started to come on as a receiver at a junior college in the tail end of last season but he's someone that has a chance to be a 50 or 60 catch player this year um maybe even be like a thousand yard type of a guy because he has a, a big play component and he's he's also their best return man that they've probably had in, in a while since tim white so i think you're just going to see his name a lot um and then and then defensively there, there's just the emergence of some of these guys um like an ashari crosswell who led asu in interceptions but probably wasn't really all that well known i think he's got a chance to become a, an all pack 12 player uh, in the next year or two years, uh, I think George Lee up front, they moved him from nose to end, um, somewhere in the middle of last season where he got more reps on the outside and he's really taken to that and become more of a leader. So I think that up front, he has a chance to be a guy whose name gets mentioned a lot. Uh, and that, that, that can be tough sometimes. Um, and then, uh, we're still seeing like, who's going to, really develop in some of these other positions like chase lucas last year you know he, he was very up and down and they have a baylor transfer named tamarcus davis at corner who could potentially push lucas or maybe play uh if they get an extra defensive back on the field extremely dynamic athlete like a 40 something inch vertical jump and a four three something 40 but he has good size um, and he hasn't really necessarily had the best start to spring, but you just see the potential just oozing and, and somebody that really has a chance to be a pretty special player. Um, you know, other than that, it's, it, it really, David is about the guys that they already know. Like I said, that you have returning starters everywhere across the offensive and defensive lines and at linebacker. And it's just going to be that next step in, Mervyn Robertson and Darian Butler, who were the two leading tacklers on the team, uh, a guy that that didn't play last year because he was hurt. He got a broken ankle in camp is Tyler Wiley, and he's come back and looked pretty good for having such a serious injury. And he plays a key position. It's a Tillman safety, which is like a hybrid kind of a role. You have to be able to do all these jacket jack of all trades type stuff. He's looked pretty good to start. So that's probably a name that people don't know who could be a really important player defensively. Hey, Chris, one of the, um, man, I wish I, I didn't save the tweet. I forgot who tweeted it out, but there was a tweet that was kind of getting some, uh, you know, buzz or whatever that of uh, talking about ASU's open media policy and Herm Edwards, uh, his attitude towards having an open media. And I, I, a lot of stuff he was saying was similar to what I think Pete Carroll was saying at USC when he was there, he, he liked having, assistant coaches be able to be interviewed and players be interviewed because you're, you're getting practice and, you know, they, they, I think there's rules and they, you know, they, they're coaching these guys of what to say, but usually you're hearing guys come out and once they go to the NFL, they're, they're just better coached as far as doing interviews. You know, just, you get practiced by interviewing and things like that. I don't know what your thoughts on the, uh, the media policy there. Well, of course we want the most access that we could get. Right. So, uh, very appreciative. I think ASU's media relations department is really generous and and they are they're trying to develop the coaches uh as much as they can so that, so like for example danny gonzalez who's the defensive coordinator for asu 
he really hasn't done like a whole lot of, of talking to reporters and he's such, he's so open and forthcoming, but there's a, a, a risk to that, that maybe you say some things in front of cameras that you maybe shouldn't say. And so the, he gets this experience on a weekly basis because he meets with us every week to where he can get a lot of reps and then he can talk to Mark Brand, who's in charge of ASU's media relations. And they can sort of, they can sort of go over that stuff. I think, I, I think, at a place like ASU, it's really important to try to engage as much the fan, uh, you know, audience, and and it reporters are a conduit to that. And I, I just think, like you may not, you might not have to do that in the SEC um, to where you know people are going to show up and it's going to be great inter- engagement no matter what happens. But it's not like that in most schools in the Pac-12, and certainly not ASU. And the more that you allow. Um, I think the more engaged that your audience is probably going to be actually. Right. And, and Herm Edwards is really cool because he's like, look, I'm from the NFL and even in August fans would be out there by the thousands and they could film whatever they wanted to. And they don't, they don't allow us to shoot, uh, 11 on 11 or anything and, and put that up even in the spring. But they're, they're like, you know, there's, there's, there was much more access that people had in the NFL and and yet everyone in the game is still very advanced, even more so than college. And what's the downside to that? I, I think there's a lot of paranoia with college coaches and it becomes a, a tit for tat type of thing. But by the time you, you like most teams, they're you know, you have a cupcake game the first game. You're not everyone, sometimes there's a big game, but usually, you know, everybody's gonna know based on the film what you're doing from your first game. So what are you restricting access and not allowing people to, to shoot stuff in in the spring? Like it just doesn't really make a lot of sense. And uh, I actually think it disadvantages your program in a lot of way, a lot of ways. And then you have on top of that the whole uh, the development that assistant coaches get from being in a place where the, the access to and interactions with the media uh, gives them a lot of rep. So I personally think it's it's win win. But coaches, it's like they just kind of want to, you know, feel like they're not giving out more than their peers, it seems, or there's paranoia or they don't want to be judged for certain things. Uh, and I just I just think it's very wrongheaded. I actually think that and you guys would probably agree, the more access that that uh, that we have as reporters actually the more benefit of the doubt that you're going to give to coaching staffs 100%. because you're seeing it and you're, you know, you're interacting. So I just think that that just doesn't get accounted for enough. Yeah, you're able to build relationships with a lot of the guys. Like, if you're not allowed to talk to assistant coaches, it's harder to build those relationships. Like yeah, and we're busy. Yeah. We're, you you want to keep <laughs> us busy. But like, if we're not as busy, that's when people start to get snarky and they start to look into what's going on behind the scenes. and. Yeah. All that, like, and then we are thinking, like, well, what's really happening? It's, is it different than what we're seeing or thinking or what you're telling us, you know? And so just having the eyeballs on everything and being able to say, oh, no, no, what these coaches are saying, that's really actually true, that helps coaching staffs. Like, I, I just think it, people don't understand the more media friendly that you are, it actually helps you at your ability to do your job and, and, and put your message out there to fans through this conduit of reporting. You and I would also say that, like by definition, the ones who do have a very restrictive media policy, I, I think it speaks to an underlying adversarial 
belief about the media. Like they're yeah. coming into it already with that attitude. And so it's it's more of a sign and a symptom of what the underlying thing is, which is that they don't like the media. Whereas an open media policy, that can mean they've done the calculus or they like the media, but whatever it means, I think it's a smarter plan in the long term. Um, well, well, by the way, just um, just to follow up on that, they, like if you're Kevin Sumlin, okay, you went through Texas A&M, but Texas A&M is a lot different than U of A. Like in terms of both what needs to happen to engage the fan audience and also in terms of the way the media actually are. So so when you come in and then you make these 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 policies before you even really get to see what it's like in in this market, I just think that you're you're actually you know cutting your nose off to spite your face. Absolutely. Yeah. Um with Herm, so obviously uh and we we got you on the program when uh we uh when Herm was initially hired and we were um we express some skepticism here, Ryan and I. Oh, really? Um, and we, yeah, <laughs> I know, I know. Um, we didn't stop expressing skepticism for quite a long time, and then he. I mean, I think with the way the season went, it was a more than competent season. Um, nothing really crazy happened, and all of the off-field stuff he seems to have nailed pretty well. I think we've both come around on. Okay, let's let's wait and see how this ends up. Where. Because I know at the time the fan base, the ASU fan base was obviously a little bit more bought in because they, you know, they, they've got to commit to it because it's going to be at least four or five years of this probably. Um, where are they now? You know, because I know the initial skepticism was certainly there, but um, what's your what's your read of the temperature of the fan base in terms of Herm and and where they stand on his on, on the job he's done so far? Well, he's such an even keel type of a guy, and you you can see that in all of his. Uh, engagements with boosters, fans, reporters. Um, it, you know, he he's he ha- he's so so experienced, and his career is not going to be made or broken by whatever happens at ASU, right? So, I I don't think he's really uptight about this at all. I think he's very like he knows what it's like to uh, to try to build something and get it the way that you want it, even though he's not been done it in, at the college level. And he has a very good rapport with his with his players and everything. And I just think that that the that fans they they sort of they they see this and they 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 understand it and they 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 respect him and the way that he conducts himself and goes about the business and uh, the staff members all really sort of seem to get along and it's a it's a it's a healthy work environment and like. <laughs> That's not always the case, as you guys know, right? So, <laughs> so, so, but so, and you know, that's that's of course that's easier when you're in your first year or two, right? It, it's it, it gets harder probably, um, and, and certainly when the expectations are lower, um, you know. But but uh, I just think that people were kind of you know they thought some some thought of course that maybe they they missed a couple opportunities and they could have won another game or two some have this kind of these kind of ridiculous expectations that were the product and part of what Ray Anderson said at the press conference um you know which he fired Todd Graham and then later when he hired uh Ray Anderson I mean uh, Herm Edwards which were a little bit too uh ambitious I think and he didn't do himself any favors with with that stuff and, and maybe there's a segment of fans that were um, unrealistic as a result. But but by and large, fans have been buying in and they they like the product that they saw, you know, pretty much because, as you guys remember, of course, ASU's defense was an atrocity for a couple of years there. 
and they just really didn't give up many big plays at all last year and they played really hard and everyone was sort of bought in and you saw what they were trying to do schematically especially on defense and and so the general mood is is, is pretty good and um and they're they're selling it like hey you know we we we, we took we did a good you know had a good foundational year and and now we're going to build off of that and, you know, we're going to have a new quarterback. And so there may be some challenges with that, but, but overall we like our direction. And I think the fans sort of, they see the big picture. And like you said, it's going to be a four or five year process. And what I said to you guys a year ago, I remember is that um, the challenge for Herm is not going to be year one. Yep. The, cha- the challenge for Herm is going to be, you know, do you have that, that programmatic, uh, development, you know, from a, a evaluation and recruiting and player development standpoint, those really three areas. And that's what we're going to be finding out here because they're actually kind of thin on scholarships. They've had a lot of guys transfer, mostly guys recruited by the previous staff, um, who weren't going to start and decided that they're not a good fit for the scheme or that they want to go somewhere where they, are going to be able to start, you know, as seniors. And so their numbers are a little bit down. Like they're going to probably be in the low to mid seventies in scholarships this year, but then they have um, not that many scholarship juniors or sophomores. So it's going to take a two year process for them to really catch up, but they're going to probably, you know, when you have a veteran quarterback by 2020, 2021, and then you have uh, a defense has a lot of sophomores on it and that's going to be sort of peaking. So I think people see the the big picture. They realize a lot of a lot of people that, you know, maybe this year they'll be able to be a bowl team again, and but it's not going to probably be a team that can win the Pac-12 overall. And then next year maybe they they are able to start inching closer to being able to do that. And certainly the following year, if they achieve to what they the what they think is possible. Chris Cartman, publisher of SunDevilSource.com. Follow him on Twitter at Chris. Cartman, K-A-R-P-M-A-N. We do appreciate you, Chris. And we wanted to talk before we let you go. David, I'll answer some of the, the email questions and stuff, but we have to talk a little bit about. The truth is we all know Champagne Larry likes to roll large, right? Like, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, there was a great story, and I'll let Dave do the summary of it because I think he, he did a pretty good job on our, pre, our pre-meeting that we had, uh, which is, you know, five minutes before we start recording. Um from the, the San Jose Mercury News, John Wilner uh, wrote a pretty scathing piece about how bad the Pac-12 really is struggling. It's it's worse than you thought, and I know most people think it was, I mean, they think it was ferocious, but it's it's even worse than that. So, Dave, I don't know if you give a summary, and we'll get Chris's thoughts, and we'll all kind of chat about it. So the general thing is um, the distributions, uh, the, the money that, Pac-12 schools are getting from the network itself is significantly lower than anybody currently thought, even in the revised idea of what the networks are going to provide. Um, And compared to the initial projections are very, very bad. So right now, uh, the distributions that John discovered um, were essentially what you would probably call the gross revenue that each school is getting from their Pac-12 networks uh, distribution is about two point some odd million dollars. But when you factor in that each school also had to buy back their local media rights um, as part of the uh, initial um, 
starter of the Pac-12 networks. Basically, they had to buy back all the stuff that had been sold that wasn't getting to ESPN or Fox because they all had rights to do that individually before and they had to buy that back. When you factor that in, each school is getting a distribution of some of them as low as 600000 bucks a year. Yeah. Uh, that's disaster territory. <laughs> And and not all schools have bought them back. Like they're still like I think Cal is still paying like a million dollars a year or something. Like there's, it's not like some schools have paid that off already and some haven't. So it's different for every school, but it's it's not a good situation. And it, that's like just a fraction of what these teams are getting in the SEC and the, and the Big Ten, and even that's even not as good as not nearly as good as the Big Twelve, right? So that that's really problematic because. You know what? 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 Fans in the Pac-12 have been really concerned by, and understandably so, in the last couple of years, is is they see, uh, you know, no playoff bursts, and then they see really bad bull records, and and um, you know, basketball that has really kind of appeared to fall off as a product, and they're going, they're saying to themselves, okay, what's the correlation here, right? And and I think there's a few challenges that are not necessarily related to the way that it's been managed. You just don't have as many passionate fans about the Pac-12 in that footprint as you do in some other parts of the country. But but uh, I, I, they've been way too rosy and and uh, Pollyanna-ish about just kind of what what you know this this Pac-12 network's capability. Um, would be relative to what we've seen it play out as, and I, I we were talking in that in the our meeting quote unquote <laughs> that we had. Um, like I'm watching a Pac-12 basketball game on the network a couple weeks ago, and there was three Pac-12 commercials back to back to back during a media timeout. Right. Well, that's sort of a really bad sign that nobody's buying advertising on your network. And the reason that they're not is because your numbers are really poor. And then why are your numbers really poor? Well, because you're not on direct TV. So you don't have the same carriage uh, 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 penetration that some of these other places have. So all this stuff is all sort of correlates. And now it makes you really wonder if their strategies were, were really highly flawed. Um, and, and if it would have been better for them to try to get the, the, the saturation, even if it meant lower carriage rates, from the get-go because of what it would be able to do in terms of uh, the building the audience from an initial standpoint. Uh, it's very, I think very problematic. Yeah. The, yeah, um, if, if you, uh, if you look at some of the channels that have more coverage than the PAC 12 network that are included <laughs> in this story, it's, it's awesome. There's like baby first, uh, be in sport boomerang, whatever that is. Destination America, whatever that is. Great American Country, Justice wow. Central, the Outdoor Channel, Ovation Network, something called the Pursuit Channel. I don't know. Is that like car chases? Those, no idea. There should be a car chase network. Um, yeah, it, uh, <laughs> all more than the Pac-12 network. And I think you, if you look at, I think John Wilner pointed out, I forget who he said, he gave, it was like basically the 600000 that your school would make is about what you'd pay like an offensive coordinator. So that's all you're getting from this network. And because they have those contracts for 850 live events a year, people are, I know people were tweeting Wilner saying, oh, just you got to drop all the regional networks, which I agree with, but you'd have to rip up all the contracts because that's basically... 
that was the hook. That's what these other, uh, you know, the the people that still have it, like the the cable companies and stuff, because AT and T dropped it now, so the distribution went down even more. Um, that you know, a lot of that was predicated on these, you know, 850 live events per year, but it costs money to produce every single one of those. It's so you made this really expensive product that you you know you have to do 850 of them that for 820 of them nobody watches at all so it's just i mean yeah i don't think there's a question that this was a wrong uh a lot of wrong decisions were being made and uh you know i know larry scott keeps talking about five or six years from now when they redo the contract but i just don't see it being able to make up for the shortcomings that are you know over these next few years making less than a million dollars a year per school and you're talking about the SEC making 30 or 40 million. It's like, it's, it's just like so, so bad. Why do you want total ownership of a pile of crap? <laughs> yeah. Is this is, this is a real big problem because as you guys know, it's, it's an arms race in terms of uh, salaries to your, your coaching pool and your facilities and all these things. And, and, you're you're putting your conference members at a disadvantage in those areas. It's already harder because a lot of the schools in the Pac-12, uh, not only do they not pay as much, but they don't give as much uh, security in the form of multi-year contracts. And and it, even though everybody has the same number of on-field coaches that you can have, what's really happening, in my opinion, that's giving uh, other uh, other conferences an advantage is really back-end operationally with their recruiting staffing. Uh, with with uh, all of your uh, your marketing and your promotion of your program, the video editing and and your graphic design and all these things, the outreach to your recruits, all these schools are, are spending unlimited amounts of money on analysts and all of these the design components that you're not going to be able to match and keep up in terms of the advanced scouting of opponents and all these kinds of things because you have this huge disparity uh, of revenue. On this side, and and I don't. There's really no other way to make that up. I don't think, especially because the fan bases aren't as robust in terms of the alumni giving and the ticket sales and all that stuff. So, I think we're we're. And this is maybe maybe Larry Scott actually knew this at some level, and that's why he was trying to get you know Texas and some of those other schools to be part of a bigger conference to to broaden out that footprint. Um, maybe at some level they knew that they had some of these these long-term challenges, but I don't think that they are being transparent about how bad that the situation really is uh, that that is now being revealed. Yeah, crazy, crazy stuff. Uh, John has had some positive things. Like he had somebody on his podcast that was like, yeah, this is the right, you know, some media analyst or something like saying, this is the right, you know, method and Larry Scott's doing the right thing. And it just made me cringe kind of listening to it. This is more well, like what I feel. This this feels more right. Like this just, it's not good right now. Well, see, here, here's the thing, Ryan. Like this this is a very esoteric knowledge sort of a thing about like all these complex media rights strategies. And I, I can maybe give you the benefit of the doubt on that if you aren't like a terrible officiated conference with all of these self-admitted errors that you guys have made and not even understanding your own processes and rules and stuff like that. Like that's where you lose me. Like if, if you, if you're great at all that stuff that we understand a lot more 
intuitively, then I can say, okay, maybe I can hang in there on your media rights strategy. The problem is, is that your you the way your conference is officiated is so crappy, and <laughs> and all the all these other problems that are so easily identifiable and comparable to other conferences that I you then lose the benefit of the doubt on the whole media rights thing, and especially when you know it's just a bunch of Pac-12 commercials that are that you know <laughs> I, I know are not making you any money so. Yeah, I just it's it's bad. And that's why they need like they hired a whole crisis management team and all that stuff. And it's like, I understand that. But man, fix your problems. And and that way you don't need to worry about your messaging, you know, like fix the actual problems. And I, I don't I don't know. You know, I sometimes I wonder if either the Pac-12 presidents and and Athletic, athletic uh, departments don't really understand these things as much as they should, or they like to be able to have that straw man that they could point to and allow, you know, Larry Scott to be like their whooping boy. So they don't have it, you know, you know, at their doorstep, you know, but you know, no matter how you slice it, it's a really, really big problem. Yeah. All right, Chris, we really appreciate you coming on and uh, sharing some insights. That's uh it kind of got us into doing spring football. You were the obvious choice because I think you're the only the only guy covering winter football uh, right now, or whatever you want to call it. But thanks uh, for coming on, and uh, we look forward to talking to you again sometime, probably over the summer before fall camp and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it too. I don't know what I'm going to do in March and April, but you know, I'll figure it out. <laughs> Take a vacation. Yeah, it's it's weird. Like our our schedule is usually the same every year. That you know to be done with. Spring football before March starts. I, yeah, I don't know what I would do. It's going to be weird, man. Like <laughs> I'm going to have like PTSD or something from this. Nice. All right, that's Chris Cartman. Follow him on Twitter at Chris Cartman. Of course, SunDevilSource.com does a great job covering ASU. Thanks again, Chris. Thank you. All right, cool stuff uh, from Chris, Dave, and uh, we're gonna we got one more topic we want to talk about, and then we'll we'll jump into some questions. Uh, this was uh, something a tweet I found. Uh, I think earlier in the week, but from the Stanford daily Stanford suspends sports performance director gives no public explanation. Uh, so basically Shannon Turley was placed on administrative leave by the university this week. Uh, they haven't publicly explained the decision. Uh, it's his 12th season uh, with the Stanford football program. So our buddy RJ Abadia uh, tweeted it out um, that uh, it's a personnel matter. And the, the university said they will be not providing further information uh, at this time. So I don't know, kind of it, it, strength coaches and, and performance guys can come under fire a lot nowadays, uh, Dave. So I don't know. I don't know what's going on here, but it should be interesting. Not that Stanford isn't saying much. No, and they generally don't uh, about anything internal. Um, we'll see what comes of it. Um, administrative leave, obviously that was, I think famously what a lot of those Maryland people were under before they got fired. Yeah. Um, and that's, that's kind of the, classic thing before uh while they're doing an investigation of somebody but i mean it could be such a wide range of things that it's like not even really worthwhile to speculate because it could be something football related or it could be something else you know that could be any number of different things that could cause you to be on leave at your job um to be on forced leave so um not worthwhile to speculate but obviously that's a thing for um stanford to have to deal with um and uh we'll see we'll see if that you know, what, what comes out of this, but yeah, certainly, certainly an interesting off season note. Yeah. Uh, he oversees all the, pro- I think there's 36 
varsity programs at Stanford. So like, obviously they have a lot. Um, but it's not like he's just football. I think he oversees everything. But, you know, strength coaches are known for for football. But he has to oversee all of the programs. So that's, you know, that's significant for Stanford. We'll, we'll have to, we talk to RJ, we'll have to get the latest of what's going on there. Uh, yeah, we, what the what the scuttlebutt is. Yeah. Should we jump into some questions? We don't have that many, but we'll, you know. So it'll be a tighter show today, but it's good. I, I'm glad we got Chris on. He was really good. Yeah. Nothing but tight shows. That's what we do here. The podcast <laughs> of champions. All right. We got something from Mike. You ready uh, for Mike? Sure. Uh, questions. What kind of cars do you guys drive? <laughs> here are my guesses. Ryan, something German. BMW. I'm going to say you have a personalized plate framed by a USC alumni license plate frame. Funny. Dave. Yeah, Dave, I'm going to say Dave drives a Subaru. No personalized plate or fancy frame, and I'm going to go with a coexist <laughs> bumper sticker. All right, Mike, I am insulted. I would never put a bumper sticker on my car no. of any kind. The, the fact that Mike, having listened to this for so many years, thinks that I'm the kind of person who would even have a bumper sticker, let alone a coexist bumper sticker, <laughs> I don't know. I've lost my faith in the listeners of this show. Oh, I'm sorry, David. Um, what uh, do you drive a Subaru by chance? No, 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 no. I drive a I drive a 2015 Hyundai Sonata. Oh, okay. I know. I like to live in luxury. Uh, personalized plate or frame, anything like that? Not a damn thing. It actually took me a really long time to even get like to even take off the like the frame from the dealer. Ah, like to yes. even take the like plastic piece of crap thing off of there. I, I do not, I do not care for my things. Nice. Um, okay. So for, for Mike's, for my, like Mike's pretty close on a lot of things. It's not like current, but like has been, uh, I did have a BMW for about 13, 12 or 13 years. Uh, and I liked it was a convertible BMW. Uh, it was, it was cool. I didn't have a personalized, um, like plate or anything. My wife got me one uh for our secondary car uh so we, we i do have one of those but it doesn't have a usc alumni thing on. i had one like way back when like really before i started doing this like full time uh but once you start you know i didn't have i don't have like a plate now because you know you're in the media and stuff but uh there was i have had aspects of all of those things that he said so cool mike just yeah. not not right now though yeah yeah, mine is very wrong. Very wrong. <laughs> I bet you you do have a coexist bumper sticker somewhere. No? Oh yeah, I'm sure. I do. Um, okay, well thanks for that, Mike. Uh, that, that was that's interesting. <laughs> that's great. Uh, yeah, Thomas wrote in red meat and Paul Hackett. Uh, okay, this is, should be interesting too. Hey guys, I heard that you were in need of some content during the off season. It seems like I should toss you some red meat once in a while to help out. So here's a little steak tartare for you both to enjoy. Last week, I made the mistake of stating on Twitter that even Paul Hackett would be an improvement over Clay Helton at this point. Naturally, someone was quick to point out that Hackett's tenure marked perhaps the nadir of USC's football program. He was, as you may know, the only Trojan head coach to have two consecutive losing seasons in conference play since Howard Jones in the 1930s. My response, even though Hackett struggled to win, he nevertheless recruited some fantastic players, players who would go on to blossom under Pete Carroll. How fantastic? Troy Polamalu, Kiri Colbert, and Carson Palmer, to name but a few. Still, I can't get over that Paul Hackett, perhaps the worst coach in USC history, 
Ran circles around Clay Helton in recruiting. As someone who was in college at the time, I could have never imagined that 20 years later, this could be even a topic of debate. Can't wait to hear your thoughts on this. Bon appetit, Thomas. So this is, I, I, I'm going to respond to something tangential to this question because I, I don't really have any thoughts on Paul Hackett's superiority to Clay Helton. Um, but here's an interesting thought, I think, for everyone out there. If you have a coach like Clay Helton, who is clearly superior on the field to, say, a Paul Hackett, but isn't clearly good or certainly not elite, would you prefer to have somebody who's much worse of a coach but a significantly better recruiter to stock things up for the next coach? Yeah. Sort of like a, a, a build-up thing, like kind of like Rick Neuheisel, for example. Just, you know, he's one of my favorite topics. Horrible coach. Great recruiter. Great recruiter. Jim Mora had so many players when he started out at UCLA. So do you take a new Heisel or do you take a Durrell? You know, Carl Durrell was a better coach, probably. They won more games, but he didn't stock up the program. So where do you stand on this, Ryan? So like a Ron Zook or something. I think even like a Butch Davis. Like I think those guys were Florida dudes that they recruited well. Um, Yeah, I no, I I think that's we've seen that happen, too. I think at USC, like a Ted Tolner you know, wasn't great, but he put some good players in there that Larry Smith ended up taking to three consecutive Rose Bowls, but then he didn't recruit well. So then the program really dropped down uh, after that. Um, I, I would say Clayton's a superior recruiter to Paul Hackett. There were some, some named players there, but he had two top five classes in a row before this last one coming in at number 20. Um, and he's had way better. I mean, he won a Rose Bowl. He won the PAC 12. So he's, he's definitely has a better track record than Paul Hackett, but this this past season was Paul Hackett esque, and if you have another one like that, then you know I think all bets are off. But yeah, I, I would I would rather have someone that at least can fill the cupboards because if you make the right coaching hire, someone can come in and turn things around right away. If you get a if you get a bad coach that's not a good recruiter, or even like there was a good coach that fails in recruiting towards the end, it's harder to recover from something like that. From in my opinion, yeah, I agree. Um, what I realized we did, Ryan, can I tell you what we did? What did we do? We solicited questions from listeners uh, about Arizona ASU, uh-huh. and then, uh, <laughs> we didn't ask any of them. <laughs> I totally forgot. I even, I even looked through the questions first and yeah, so did I. Yep. And neither of us like thought to ask Cartman. I think it's I think it's commendable that people listen to a podcast <laughs> produced by guys who like clearly clearly are extremely stupid i think it's i think it's it's awesome i think a lot of people out there take sympathy on us and it's great and i think it's a real sign of you know just kind of the generosity of the human spirit don't look Um, at the degrees or the gpas or like the standardized testing that's that's no indication like we really are dumb we are so dumb (laughs) like so hilariously dumb and bad at this and it's just it's amazing to me and i again a testament to your generosity of spirit out there everyone that you are still listening to this um shall i read one of these questions yeah how about hitler days you want, let me start with hitler days. That, that looks short and uh compact so, yeah. <laughs> day almond while i welcome you oh his 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 um his his subject line is in Latin. Um, I don't know what the first word means. The second one, I think, means God. Um, it's like deus, like, like a, like a deity. 
It's like a deity Pop- kind of thing, the the god part, like well, Deus. Okay, so Popperum just means popper. Okay. Okay. All right, so popper god. Like, a, a, I don't know. Maybe it's a phrase. All right, so anyway, the phrase is popperum deus. Um, so let's see if that's an actual thing or if he's actually... Okay, he's created a Latin phrase, uh, the first person to do that in 2,000 years. All right. uh, While I welcome you boys' ceaseless and well-earned ridicule of USC and UCLA, I think it's overshadowed the other part of the problem the Pac-12 South has, which is the failure of the Arizona schools to capitalize on the LA schools' incompetence. On the field in 2018, both Arizona and ASU won, finished 5 to 10 ranks lower in S&P Plus than their predecessors' average. Two, gained fewer yards per game despite inheriting Khalil Tate and Nikhil Harry. And three, packed up, uh, racked up the two worst penalty yardages in the conference, reversing the progress of the last two years. Words are hard. But recruiting really tells the tale. Over his six-year tenure, Rich Rod averaged the 42nd-ranked class. Kevin Sumlin has gotten 56 and 61 in the same time frame. Todd Graham averaged the 29th ranked class. Herm Edwards has gotten 31 and 37. I sort of understand the trap the media has fallen into with Herm. Expectations were so low that he just had to avoid showing up to games and clown makeup and other media friendly access to the team. And folks in your profession fell all over themselves to praise him. But I'm baffled at the pass Sumlin has gotten. The whole point of hiring him was to improve recruiting and they've gone completely backwards on that question. Both coaches failed to build a fence around their state, with all five of the top-ranked players in Arizona going elsewhere, and there's much to blame for not scooping up the California talent leaving the Pac-12 as the L.A. schools for whiffing on them in the first place. When is the media going to start holding these guys' feet to the fire? Huh. Um, well, I think you're, you're nitpicking with Arizona State. Uh, you know, they finished second in the Pac-12, uh, in 2017, second in 2018, I thought that was really nice progress for Herm Edwards. Like that's a, they're doing things completely differently. I think you can, you know, you can be a little bit more critical of, of Kevin Sumlin and what they're doing there. But uh, I mean, Herm Edwards exceeded expectations. I would say the class, you know, like, like uh, Chris said, probably the best you know quarterback class in the country. Uh, they were going to get a lot of transfers. They're doing things very differently. They're changing the culture. And I think uh, just, just running the athletic department in a completely different way. So I, I think they were ahead of where you would have thought. Now they might take a little bit of a step back this year, um, but it's going to be that I think 2020 will be the the real one where, Hey, is this, is this going to be a team that's fighting for the PAC 12 South title? I mean, they could still do it in 2019, but, um, or are they going to, or are all these weird things that they're doing that's different than everybody else going to finally, you know, backfire. And then you're going to see some, some poor results. But I, I think you're, I think Hitler Day's nitpicking a little bit with ASU. I think there's more, uh, I think there's more meat on that uh, complaint bone for Arizona than there is for ASU. And I'm not, I, I'm not trying to carry water for either Arizona, but I think he's very much nitpicking and, and kind of misreading stats. And I'm disappointed Hitler Day uh, because I, I, I think of you as an intelligent fellow and I, I still think you are, but Looking at a five-year average or a six-year average compared to what they did in basically one year, especially in S&P Plus or in recruiting over two years, I think really misses the mark of what we're looking at. Because if you look at the years leading up, and he helpfully provided the stats, here's where ASU was in S&P Plus in the three years preceding last year, 38th, then 81st, then 68th. So last year they finished 52nd. Clear improvement over the last two years under Todd Graham. 
Like that's clear advanced stats improvement. And then if you look at recruiting, they were 31st this year, 37th last year. Well, the year before that, they were 32nd. In the first two years under Graham, they were 36 and 39. So are we really talking about too many standard deviations away from the from the from the norm here? I don't think so. Um, so this is uh, recruiting is of a piece, and I would say that recruiting is the thing that you are kind of limited by your your base. You're kind of limited by what what's what's possible um, and what is possible at ASU. I mean, I don't think it is consistently recruiting at a top 15 level. That's just not reasonable, but I think recruiting at a consistent top 35 level, I think the best coaches there have consistently done that. So Herm looks like he's right in line with that. And there was some improvement in S and P plus. So I would say the early returns that he's done a fine enough job. Yeah, I think that's right. If you look at someone, I don't think first, I don't think anybody is touting someone as having been a great success in year one. Nobody is sitting here saying, wow, someone did an incredible job at Arizona. I think everyone's just kind of like, Oh, Kind of a mediocre first year. They really misused Khalil Tate. He was hurt, though. Let's see what happens in year two. But, yeah, I mean, I, I think their recruiting has not been um, particularly strong, but Arizona's generally isn't particularly strong. And as we looked at last week with going over the final classes, there's a big soft middle in the recruiting rankings. Um, anywhere from, like, 40 to 60 or 70, those classes are much the same with just a little bit of difference in terms of the overall quality. But if you're saying like the difference between the 56th best class and the 45th is uh, that's not a significant difference. Um, now if it, if it was, they had the, you know, 45th best class in 2017 and then it jumped all the way to the 80th best class, then yeah. Oh God, that's, that's bad. Um, but there's just, there's not a whole lot of rating difference in those, in those metrics. So that's one where, the absolute rank, I don't think, gives you the full picture of where these things actually are. Um, and then in S&P Plus, they went up a spot. So here's here's where it was for Rich Rod's last three years. 2015, 59th. 2016, 87th. 2017, 59th. And then last year, 58th. So that's treading water. It's not improving, but it's not getting a whole lot worse. Yeah. So I think, I, I, and I don't know a single person out there who's not in wait and see mode on Kevin Sumlin. I think there's some cautious optimism about Herm Edwards. Um, and I think it, it, yes, it is in context of what they did or, or, or what everyone was thinking Herm Edwards was going to be. And then the reality that he's just, he seems like a, whatever, a fine, you know, fine coach. Um, that certainly plays into it a little bit, but also I think if you look at the numbers, they're in line with an improving team. Yeah. He also gives us a, uh, a Andrew like chart. That's uh 12 lines and six of them are cover colored red. So it's really hard to kind of see. It's basically the penalties over the past five years in the pac 12. So I'm assuming he's saying Arizona state and Arizona didn't do very well on the penalties, but it's, it's really hard to, to read for me. Well, all, yeah. All those things are like roughly the same color. I don't know. Maybe <laughs> we're both like particularly colorblind, but it looks like, yeah. Cause it's all they're They're colored according to their team colors, but I mean, Arizona, Arizona State, USC, Utah, Washington State. And yeah, those those five all have very similar reds. So unless we have a really keen eye for that, it's going to be tough for us to see this. Um, we have a text question. I'm going to text it to Cartman to get his answer. Uh, so we'll skip that one for now. Do you want to do the, the beer one and I'll text Chris? Yeah, do that. All right. This is from Steve. Was catching up. Oh, uh, subject line is beer. One exclamation point, two exclamation point, three exclamation point, 
four. Uh, was catching up with the podcast, and I heard the part a couple weeks ago about relating teams to beer. I want to play. Here are mine. Washington, Sapporo. This Japanese lager pairs well with noodles, specifically lo mein. Love it. Washington State, any IPA, this type of beer uses flavors other than hops as frequently as Mike Leach uses a running back. Also, both products are reviving the mustache. <laughs> Pretty good. Uh, Oregon, Oregon, Pabst Blue Ribbon. The brand is strong and seems to get stronger with each passing year, but once you experience the product, you realize it's actually pretty average. Uh, Oregon State, Schlitz. Your parents tell you about how good it used to be, but it was so many years ago they forgot when it was still relevant. California, Michelob Ultra. This is the least offensive beer. Cal has the least amount of offense. <laughs> offensive is close to offense, and beer is close to bear, so that's something. <laughs> Stanford, Magic Hat Pale Ale, just like Stanford fans, you've never heard of its existence, but just have to take someone's word that they do indeed exist. UCLA, Coors, have you seen the commercial of the Mountain Man after working a hard day in the Rockies, sticking his cold hand into the colder snow to grab an even colder can of Coors? You know what that man isn't wearing? Gloves. (laughs) That's a deep, that's a deep cut. That's a deep cut. I think four people got that one, but we were two of them. Uh, USC Zima, a malt beverage, not a beer. I know, but just like Cliff Kingsbury, it was just over just moments after you even found out it existed. Plus USC and Zima both pair well with hummus. Nice. Arizona Bud Light with lime. Everyone said it was going to be good, but turns out, (laughs) (laughs) but turns out it sucked shit. (laughs) I don't like if we play volleyball on the beach. I like drinking, but but I, I haven't had it in a while. But Bud Light Lime was actually pretty refreshing. Oh, you're a beach. disgusting human being. <laughs> um, Arizona State Miller High Life claims to be the champagne of beers the way Arizona State claims it would be a top 15 team every year. Everyone knows neither is true. Utah Polygamy Porter, a local brew in Salt Lake City. Its tagline is, why have just one, which in addition to being a low-hanging joke about marriage in the state, also perfectly describes Utah's attitude towards offensive coordinators over the years. Colorado Budweiser, a person's opinion of this beer is that it's the only beer they drink. Let's say first among beers, or they say it's the worst beer they've ever had. Let's say sixth among beers. No one ever ranks this beer second through fifth. (laughs) This is well, like Stephen Salt Lake put a lot of thought into this. Cheers, guys. That was great, Steve. Thank oh, you. I'm sorry to me to stomp on your last line. Um, no, no, you were you were great. You were wonderful. That was that was really good. Like uh, beer seems to be like the text we got for Cartman was also about beer too. Uh, he hasn't responded yet, but we'll, if he, hopefully he does before the end of the show. All right, we got a text question, David. Uh, hipster uh, IPA beard here. ASU alumni living in the South Bay. Uh, how does the new stadium look? <laughs> Crap. This would be a great mm-hmm. question. What are they doing with the old ASU golf course? What kind of beer do they drink now? Back in my day, 2000 was Keystone Light. Yeah, that would have been a good you one. You know what? We I, I, think the, I think the new stadium looks great. Um, I think they're going to uh, move the new ASU golf course to a new location. And uh, they're drinking... Um, uh, they're, they're drinking just the... the darkest black german beer you can find well uh well i'm gonna text him that too and we'll find out i mean we'll probably won't be for the show but maybe for the next one or we'll tweet it out or something so sorry about that <laughs> we solicited questions we are so dumb like it's it's incredible how bad we are it like this is such a meaningless like it's such a dumb thing we do every week like it doesn't take anything beyond like the most minimal effort ever and we just skirt right under that like it's incredible. 
we're we're incredible people. And yeah. I'm I'm more incredible than you. Obviously, you do a little bit more work than I do, but by God, it's it's nuts. I love it. We do love it. Um, well, I guess we got one last question then if Chris doesn't get back to us. Yeah. All right. So early signing period and quote, LOL. This is from Matthew from Mountain View. Hi, Dave. Here's my idea for fixing the early signing period. What if you moved the period earlier, as you suggested, such as July or August, but limit the number of signings that each school can do? For example, no more than 10. This would allow high-level recruits to shut down recruiting early if they want, while largely blocking schools from pressuring or locking out potential recruits who are still undecided. This would prevent the early signing period from becoming the de facto primary signing period, such as over the past two cycles. Um, I'll get to that before we get to our next one. I, I wouldn't love it. I think teams should be allowed to sign however many they want. I think it would be naturally most guys would still want to go through their senior year. And also a lot of guys don't really even blow up until their senior year when they're playing. Right. Um, so I don't I, I don't think you would end up signing more than 10. I think it would be kind of naturally it would be like, I don't know, five to 10 guys you would sign in July or August. And then you fill out the bulk of your class in February. Yeah, I agree with you. I don't think you need to have um if you're going to put the early, I think the early signing period should be like July or August, but you don't need to put a limit on it because I think it would just be limited. But, you know, it's just having it six weeks before signing day made it another signing day. You made it the the real signing day. You put it in July or August. It's I think that would be more what it was intended to do is have people come on early. And so I think that would probably be the way to go. Yeah. And then he says, uh, also, I was watching TV last Saturday when I saw your very short tweet, LOL. My immediate thought was that something really bad must have just happened in the UCLA <laughs> basketball game. Dave, care to tell your listeners about your viewing experience? Keep up the goodish work from Matthew. I I, I don't mind. Um, what was that tweet, David? So it was LOL. That's what I tweeted. I tweeted <laughs> LOL. Um, so this came after UCLA had a 22-point lead against Utah with, I think, 12 minutes to go. Then they had a 17-point lead with six minutes to go. Then they had, like, a – I think they had, like, a 12-point lead with, like, three minutes to go. Oh, they must have and only won by, lost. like, six, which is, like, They lost right? in regulation. They lost? They lost, they lost in regulation. Um, it was beautiful. Here's the thing. This UCLA basketball season is a real issue for me because I have to watch it for my job, but I have absolutely no interest in it. Like, because they've already fired the head coach, right? So yeah. that's done. They're just, they've got an interim guy, interim guy going right now. Um, the team is bad. Like, they're not going to be good. So it's like not even like of interest. Like, oh, what could happen here? You're not rooting for them to lose. So the coach will be fired. It's just what. What what rooting interest, what even interest at all do I have in watching this team right now? And Saturday answered my question. That was awesome. That was friggin' incredible. I've never, I don't think I've ever seen a comeback like that. It was awesome. Um, so yeah, that was that, that was the genesis of my LOL. Nice. Cool. Um, that was it for that question, right? That's it. We have uh breaking news here uh okay so the the question was we got a text question for cartman how quickly do you drink a half of a pumpkin porter this seemed very important because i don't know what it means uh but i texted chris and he said uh pumpkin porter is an inside joke because he left one uh un unfinished after having three others at an event uh a few years ago so he left a half of a porter there so i guess he had three of them 
Then he drank half of one. So uh, that must be something that his subscribers get on him about leaving uh, half a pumpkin porter out there. All right. He didn't respond to the other part. So we'll uh, we'll try to get more updates on the golf course and how the new stadium is looking at all that stuff. But you, you go to Sun Devil Source. I'm sure they're talking about it, too. Yeah. Nice. Um, awesome. Okay. Well, I think that's going to wrap it up, Dave. That wraps it up for me. Yeah. All right. That's uh, David Woods. I'm Ryan Abraham. Not sure what we're going to do next week. We'll probably try to do Mondays, right? Is that like our regular schedule time? Yeah, I'm actually I'm actually going to be out there in your neck of the woods next week. So maybe Ooh. we can get together on Monday. We could do an in-person thing. and uh, But we're going to have to figure out what to talk about because I don't think we can do other spring. <laughs> I mean, we could maybe preview spring with some people. Um, but it's going to be hard to talk about spring because no one else is doing that yet. That might be difficult. Yes. Yeah, we'll figure it out. And uh, you know, whatever, whatever. We'll talk we'll, about we'll, the ASU's golf course. You know. There we go. <laughs> we'll have an answer to that question. That'll fill twenty-five minutes. <laughs> all right. Well, that's David Woods. Uh, I'm Ryan Abraham. Thanks for all the questions, especially the beer ones. We got a lot of beer ones. That's good. Uh, we are the podcast of champions. We will appreciate you uh, listening, and we'll talk to you next time.